Man, I don't know if I could have uh, chosen a, a better series of songs to lead us into our text today. Psalm 2, singing Psalm 2. Man, so good. So good. We'll be singing that uh, for the next, the next few weeks. So that way we can learn it well. And in the future, we can sing it having uh, known the tune, known what it says, and increase uh, praise to the God who deserves it. This morning we're in Jeremiah 33, and um, I've always been taught in preaching it's bad practice to, to sort of apologize for certain things when you start or you know, talk about things that are basically going to turn your listeners away, but I'm doing it today. This has been a, a, a crazy week. It's been a crazy year and a half. Um, and I felt it necessary just to give you an update. You haven't heard an update from me lately on my schoolwork. And uh, it always seems like it's around the corner. And now, like, the corner has arrived. So it better be around the corner. Um, I have only a, a, a month left before, not even a month left, before my uh, final work has to be submitted. And uh, it is done. It just is going through the processes of, uh, minor edits, you know, periods and commas and footnotes and whatnot. So, um, uh, God be praised for his uh, patience and his grace uh, toward, toward me in the process. Never thought I'd get emotional about schoolwork. Having said that, the first time I was able to look at our preaching passage for this morning was Thursday morning. And uh, I appreciate Kyle putting some thoughts in my head in regard to this text. And we're going to do what we can with it today in the time that we've been given. We're in a, a section, as we've said the past few chapters, of Jeremiah 33. We're kind of coming to the conclusion here, 33, 34 where it's just good stuff. It all seems to be so positive and hopeful and focused on restoration and the work that God intends to do ultimately through the exile of the people and then in our case through the salvation from sin, from the slavery of sin, and even the exile in these foreign lands in which we live. Um, and so we're, we're sort of riding the wave, if you will. Maybe a better way is, is resting in this, this trip, this journey that God's taken us through in Jeremiah. I want to begin just by reading the first few verses, and then we'll, we'll read as we go. Hopefully I don't forget. Jeremiah 33, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Let's pray. Father, help us. Right now we're doing what your word says. We're calling upon you as we do every Sunday together. We're calling on you for understanding. God, you promised to answer us. 
You promised to show us these great and hidden things. Father, help us to know more of you, more of your son, more of the gospel, that it would result in greater praise to you. Father, help us as we worship you in spirit and in truth this morning, recognizing Jesus as the only Savior, the only King, the only sacrifice. God, be praised in all these ways. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The title today of the sermon is The Assurance of a King Enthroned. The Assurance of a King Enthroned. And as we walk through this, you're going to notice that uh, all of this revolves around a future David, uh, the righteous branch, the king who will come to sit on the throne uh, forever. And so get that, get that in your minds from the get-go. And a couple of the things I want you to see as we looked at just these couple of verses to start with, I want you to note, first off, God is he's, he's making a promise here. He's fulfilling, I guess, uh, uh, remembering and saying again the promise that he's made to his people. And so he founds this promise and the assurance that follows on his own name. He says, I'm the creator. I made everything you see. My name is the Lord. And this name, this in your Bible, capital L-O-R-D. This is the name of the self-existent one who created all that we see, all that's in the world. He created it all by the word of his power. And so, as Pastor Kyle noted on this text, his promise is based on his own character. And it ought to be enough for us to look into this promise and realize God said it. He said he would do it. And so he will do it. But God, I suppose, realizing that we have trouble just accepting that. He wants to show us a little more. He wants to give us a little deeper understanding here, a better picture of what he intends to do. So he's founding this promise and the assurance of this promise on his own character. But also... We see right here this invitation is given to the people of God for deeper understanding. I want you to know that, that God is not hiding things that he wants you to know. I, know. I know we spend our lives sort of trying to figure out what God's will is. We can look in his word and know what we need to know. A lot of times we search for answers to things that we don't really need the answer to while ignoring what he has revealed in his word. So I want to be clear. He is not hiding stuff from us. He's not like, oh, you know, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I want you to know this quite yet. No, he, he says right here, call to me. I'll give you the answers you need. And maybe... You haven't considered that God withholds certain understanding for our good. Is knowing this or that about this or that situation, is that really going to solve your problem? I think God knows better. His word lights our path. It reveals to us exactly what we need to know in order to be faithful to the task 
He's given us, and right here, he invites us to understand. He invites us into wonderful assurance of his promise. So the theme today, God will surely fulfill the promise of redemption through the eternal king. God will surely fulfill the promise of redemption through the eternal king. So we want to walk through this and seek understanding as he invites us on how sure God's promise is, how he intends to to bring it about, and and then we're going to see proof at the very end, the proof of his promise and his king. So I want to give you two encouragements for today, two encouragements from this text. First off, envision the beauty of the promise. Envision the beauty of the promise. Of the promise. I want to continue verses 4 to 13. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. You get what they're doing. They had to tear everything down to defend themselves against the Babylonian Empire. It says, they are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath, for I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. You know this well. We have preached this and preached this and preached this. But then he gets to verse 6. Behold, I will bring it to health and healing, and I will heal them. And reveal to them the abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in this place that is waste without man or beast. And in all of its cities there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem And in the cities of Judah, flocks again, excuse me, flocks shall again pass under the hands of one who counts them, says the Lord. Envision the beauty of the promise. Now, I dare you to read all those verses and try to put together a better description of what God is going to do through the salvation of his people. 
It doesn't get any better than this. And I would tell you, saints, we would benefit from getting our hearts and minds so full of what is to come that we are not overcome with the thought of what may happen. I think we find it easier to take every thought captive in Christ when we devote ourselves to true thoughts about his saving work. The wrestling that we do in in discipleship. Those of you that, that have people holding you accountable, you see this all the time. And what is it? It's constantly retraining our hearts and minds toward the truth of God's word. When you are filled with the thoughts of what will be, you won't get caught up in what may happen. You know, the spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 2, who searches the deep things of God, reveals what we can't see, hear, or imagine on our own. The spirit working through the word to reveal the beauty of Christ ought to be our preoccupation. Paul writes to the Colossians, the encouragement. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, if then you have been raised with Christ, you belong with Jesus. His hope is your hope. His resurrection is your resurrection. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. I think Jeremiah's words here are showing us in the midst of exile, when all the things look totally wrong, here's the promise that you can recall. Here's the scene that you can replay. And we can think about this and we can imagine what will be and we can't even put into words what God will do. So envision the beauty of the promise here. And notice a couple of things here, two outcomes of this promise. First off, there is manifold blessing to God's people. Verses 6 through 8. Manifold blessing to God's people. In the promises we read, healing is found, prosperity and security, restoration, rebuilding, the removal of guilt. And these are all topics that draw many crowds even today, right? The doctor has a method that brings healing. You can guarantee he'll have no shortage of business. When the financial guru holds a seminar, people sign up. If the expert gives tips, then people listen And even when there's somebody with a a new and and maybe cutting-edge philosophy or spirituality and people need relief from the guilt they feel, they're going to go hear from them. The human condition is in a constant state of scrambling for these things, for security, for health, for relief. But you know, in, in God's economy, the doctor is only going to delay your death. And yet we seek 
We seek ways to, to not die. We seek ways of healing and treatment. And we don't seek Christ with that same fervor. In God's economy, the financial planner can't get your riches beyond the grave. In God's economy, the expert's answers will only last for a season and the stain of guilt can't be washed away with human concoctions. This is how God's designed it. He's designed it so that we seek these things and when we seek these things in ways that he has not designed, that we come up empty. We come up lacking. But here's the point. The people in Judah had become so comfortable with these things, security, with blessing, normal life, freedom. Nobody's oppressing us. And you know what they did? They said, we're just going to push God to the side. We got it going for us. We're in good shape. And so they left him out of the picture. But in exile, they realized the pursuit and the retention of these blessings is nothing. It is worthless without God. And so for our application, I would simply say, pursue God, know God, love God, worship God alone. We know what the Bible says. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. There's a list of things here, a list of blessings that you, if you want to, you can spend your life pursuing. And God says, that's not the goal. I'm the goal. And you know what you get when you come to me, when you pursue me, when you know me, when you trust me, you get all these blessings. We come to God for God, and in him we get all things. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, every measure of security and prosperity, every measure of healing, every measure of hope, every measure of cleansing. And he mentions cleansing of guilt, forgiveness of guilt, and for now I'll just say because of his work, there will be no guilt. And we ask the question, how? And we'll get there. It shows us here the manifold blessings to God's people. It also shows us, verse 9, multiplied glory to God. This is a concept that we touched on a few weeks ago. Verse 9 this city shall be to me a name of joy and a praise, a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. We may not often think of what our salvation does for God. The fact that he saves us for his own glory. And as we're saying here, multiplied glory. On God's own words, the redemption of his people brings him joy. It results in his praise and multiplies glory given to his name. 
But I noticed something really interesting about verse 9, and I can't, I can't get away from it. I think there's an aspect to this that we must not miss. As a kid, I was always taught, you know, when you play a game, you play a sport, you want to you wanna lose well and you want to win well. You know, you win a game, you don't want to rub it in, although you all have done it. You know, you rub it in, especially if it's your sibling. You rub it in. But you know what God says right here? He says, I'm going to be so good to my people, and I'm going to do it all right in the faces of the nations. I'm going to do it on the stage, so to speak, so everybody in the world can see my blessings poured out on this people that do not deserve my blessings. Shakespeare once wrote, all the world's a stage. But it's not a stage for humans to act out our lives. I would tell you from God's word, we get the beautiful picture that it is a stage for God to unfold the most beautiful story ever told. You know, the nations or the audience and all who do not find a way into this drama of redemption will be left on the wrong side of the most glorious ending to the best story ever told. I think it's interesting how, how God would use jealousy and envy to bring people to Jesus, but he does. You know, people look at the people of God and they ought to say, man, what do they have? I don't get it. I don't get it. I want it though. You know, there's going to be some cases where they say, I don't know what they got, but I hate them. By God's design, He has made us to be a people who show forth the kingdom, who show forth the character of God so that the world will look upon the grace and the mercy and the salvation that is ours in Jesus and say, I want that. And so they are jealous of forgiveness, jealous of God's grace. You know, God turns it around and the, New Testament through the writings of Paul, Romans 11. He even talks about how God goes to the Gentiles to save people like you and me, goes to the Gentiles to save them in order to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Those that had rejected Jesus as the Savior, they look upon this gospel, this Savior, this Messiah going forth to the nations and the salvation of the nations who had no old covenant with God. They don't know anything about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't know anything about Moses. They don't know anything about the, the captivity. They don't know anything about Egypt. And God's going to save them. God uses jealousy to bring about the repentance of those who rejected him. This is a beautiful picture of it right here. I'm going to do this in front of all the nations that they can see all the good that I pour out on my people. He gives us immediately two pictures Two ways, I guess you could say, of many more that we could list. One is worship, verses 10 and 11. 
worship. We're not talking here about people showing up for a time of worship and then stopping the worship and going home. That's not, that's not what he shows us. The picture here is life together that revolves around the worship of God. It's all of life ordered in relation to the God who redeems. And thanksgiving is sort of like the, the cherry on top. that They bring thanksgiving or thanks, thank offering, excuse me, to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Their lives are relishing in the goodness of God as they bring praise to him. He, he notes these things of, of normal life, as we talked about several weeks ago. There's going to be gladness in the streets. There's going to be bridegrooms and brides. They're going to be singing, and they're all going to come to worship me. And I want you to know that this is not like, like pie-in-the-sky kind of talk. This is not something that is only something that we're looking forward to. It's something that God intends for us to experience right now. This is what the, the, the point of this road of sanctification that we're on is. That our lives would be increasingly ordered under the lordship of Jesus. That things would be reflected in our lives more and more like God intended from the beginning and like it will be ultimately in the end. Everything about their lives, 10 and 11, the picture is worshiping God. But then also shepherding. We see worship, and we get a glimpse of shepherding. Shepherds will be counting their sheep again. It may not mean a whole lot to us. It certainly means a lot to a society like this. One commentator said the shepherds will know each member of their flock personally and count them individually into the sheepfold at night. Man, these verses will preach. But we're going to have to preach those another time. All I will say here, folks, you know how hard it is for your pastors, for pastors in general, to keep up with the sheep. But the good shepherd keeps perfect count. Not one will be lost. This ought to bring comfort to you as you envision the beauty of this promise. So in these verses so far, we've dealt with sort of the what of the promise, the, the beauty of the promise, what it will be like. And like I said, let's, let's uh, use our uh, spirit-filled, sanctified imaginations to spend a lot of time thinking about what will be. But I want to turn in the second half to the how of the promise, or better yet, maybe the who of the promise. And that is, embrace the promise of the king. So envision the beauty of the promise, now embrace the promise of the king. Verses 14 through 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Judah. 
in those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And all the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that those people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people so that they no longer, they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Embrace the promise of the king. By embracing a promise of the king, we'll find all the assurance that God intends for us to have. The promise of this king ensures that righteousness will be the standard of leadership and judgment. And this is in contrast to all the wicked kings, one after another, who sat on the throne in Jerusalem. This king brings peace and safety. He'll never be removed. He'll never be overthrown. His work will never fail. There's something unique about this king. Verses 17 and 18 describe Never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and all the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings and so forth. There will always be a priest. Verses 17 and 18 promise a priest that's in the presence of God on behalf of the people. And immediately, this reassured the people that their worship in the temple would once again. Return, only as we know history, only later to be removed. So the fulfillment, the complete fulfillment of this promise is found in one who is both king and priest. And we know, we know we're talking about Jesus Christ here, the one who came to establish a kingdom, to sit on the throne, who's seated at the right hand of the Father now. This is the king we long for, we await. But he's also the priest, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so we return to the thought 
of our guilt being removed and being cleansed and being forgiven. And this gives us the answer. The whole picture is not just that God would put a king on the throne and then that he would cleanse us from guilt, cleanse us from sin. No, that king who would be on the throne would be the one to cleanse us from guilt and cleanse us from sin. You see how the promise is fulfilled in the king who comes, in the priest who takes his post forever, ever interceding on our behalf. By embracing this king will find the assurance that God intends for us. And right here in these last couple of paragraphs, if they're broken up like yours are, are, or like mine are in my Bible, you'll see that God seems to be referring again to his name, the self-existent one, the creator God. And he refers to the cycles he built into creation to meet us with assurance. So it ought to be enough that God says, I said I will do it and I will do it. And here's what he says. I'll give you a little something though. I'll give you a little little bit of proof. I want to ask you a question before before we examine these things. How many of you maybe couldn't sleep this morning. 4 a.m., you get up, and the the thing that is plaguing your mind is, will the sun come up today? Was that you this morning? You got up and you said, I just don't know if the day's going to start. God, I'm waiting. I I don't see it coming over the trees. God, what's going on? It's a little too dark outside. I'm not sure that this day is coming. You know what God says? You want to trust me more than you trust that sunrise. (laughs) If you can break my covenant with day and my covenant with night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David may be broken. Here's how sure the promise is. The sun comes up and it keeps coming up because God makes it. And he says, I promise you in ways that are better and stronger and bigger than that. You can be sure about this king. You can be sure about this promised king. And verses 19 through 22 show us, first off, we can't mess it up. Do you think you got the power to stop the sun from coming up? Can you break that covenant? Can you make God's covenant with day and night come to an end? Do you have the power to do that? Can you make the sun stay down? Can you make the world stop spinning? But I would tell you, believer, why do you put so much faith in the power of your sin? And you live your life thinking, oh, man, it's just one more thing and God's going to hate me again. It's one more thing, and I'm going to turn away his love. It's one more thing, and he's going to reject me. He's going to despise me. He's going to abandon me. But you live your life like that, don't you? 
like he's going to forget about his promise to you, believer? God said the sun came up and my promise is even more sure. Man, there's so much beauty here. I wish I could say it better than I'm about to say it. As the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and Levitical priests who minister to me. Here's what I want you to know, folks. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are numbered in that host in heaven. You're one of those stars he talks about. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you're that grain of sand that he set his heart on from the foundation of the world. You're a part of that. He talks about how there's going to be priests to minister to me. He talked about this priest who will, uh, he'll be the one to bring the sacrifice, but then he mentions more priests here. This is a fulfillment of what he said in Exodus 19.6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. It's repeated right here. 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9. God redeems us. He saves us to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then Revelation 1, 5 and 6. To him who loves us and freed us from our sin by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, folks, I want you to realize you're not just a recipient of salvation. You're not just one of those numbered stars. You're not just one of those grains of sand, but you are a priest in the priesthood of God. This is why we as Baptists believe and hold to the priesthood of believers. I want you to know, we can't mess this up. Just like you couldn't stop the sun from coming up today, but I would also say we can't doubt it. Now understand that there are doubts that creep in from time to time for whatever reason, and that's not sin. It's not sin to doubt, but as doubts either arise within us or doubts come from outside The faithful, when those doubts arrive at your door, you must rest in the assurance that God provides. You must rest in the truth of God's word. I know in our day, there is a a big emphasis for maybe in in, in my generation, the younger, there's an almost popular thing. to deconstruct your faith. And it's, uh, it's so trendy, it's, it's nauseating. Um, but I would, I would caution you, if you are even considering, like trying to deconstruct your faith, you better be ready to replace whatever you deconstruct with something that is true. You can't deconstruct without a purpose to reconstruct. So when these doubts come, you have to meet that doubt with truth. You have to meet that doubt with the assurance that God provides. 
And here's the thing, like when I think about these people in the Old Testament, they're looking toward something, the revelation of the Messiah, and we're on the other side of that. We look back. We look back at the historical Jesus who came, lived the perfect life, died on the cross and rose again, who appeared to the disciples, many of whom lost their lives for their faith, and he appeared to 500 others. All of this testifies to the kingdom that he established. And this Jesus also was observed by those who gave their lives to be ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, and we at this point await his return when this king will come again in full power, in might, and he will again be seated on his throne in a renewed, perfectly renewed and redeemed creation. This is the king we await. It's the king that God promised. It's the king of our salvation. It's the king who gives assurance today. So I would tell you, as we conclude, you may be in a a sea of doubt, riddled with doubt. I would encourage you this morning to plead with the Holy Spirit to show you truth. I would encourage you this morning to plead with God to reveal himself, call on him, and he says, I'll show you these things. I'll show you what I'm doing. If you don't have the assurance of knowing Jesus, you don't have the assurance of being found in him, you don't have the assurance of being counted among the people of God, the Bible says repent of your sin, turn away Believe on him and his sufficient work at the cross, and salvation will be yours. Believe. Believe today on him. Maybe there are other ways the Holy Spirit would lead you to respond. Let's do that as we respond to the word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for our time, being able to open up your word, to give us understanding, to give us Jesus, to help us, Father, to enlighten our hearts and minds to all that you intend for us to know. Father, forgive us when we are quick to doubt you, slow to trust your work. Forgive us, God, when we lose sight of what you have promised in the end that renewed creation, that coming king, the presence of Jesus. Father, we pray that we would be found faithful as we look to that day. Like these in exile, Father, we pray that our lives would give you honor and glory. Pray that our lives would be centered around you in worship, that you would order things in us, in our lives, in the church, as you intend for them to be, Father, and that you would receive all glory for it. Father, we do thank you for this King Jesus who shed his blood on the cross, this priest who made the offering of his own blood to redeem us and sanctify us forever. We love you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.